0: Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com.
1: Happy New Year! We are so glad you're joining us for Here and Now Anytime, where we share news you need today and stories that stick with you tomorrow. Subscribe or follow us.
2: Winning for Rocky wasn't always necessarily knocking out his opponent and actually winning the final fight. He won by being standing.
1: How our economy is like a Rocky metaphor. We explore the economic outlook for 2024. The first day of the new year, Monday, January 1st, 2024. From NPR and WBUR Boston, welcome to Here and Now Anytime. I'm Shirley Jahad.) today we are going to explore our economic future the year ahead the cost of home buying the cost of renting the job market and more and then a question for you on this new year's day what does blues pioneer Bessie Smith have in common with animation pioneer Walt Disney the answer is free starting today we'll tell you about the works of art entering the public domain First up, we look ahead with Robin Young at the prospects of rebuilding Gaza. Now we know.
3: Gaza is in rubble, thousands killed. It may seem obscenely early to even talk about rebuilding, but what if this is the exact time, while the world is watching, to plan for a Gaza to rise through the agency of architecture? That's the demand of the 2021 book Open Gaza Essays and Blueprints from Architects and Scholars from Gaza and around the world, a suggestion for a solar dome over the area to produce local energy, desalinating greenhouses that would produce both. Freshwater and food from seawater. In 2009, designers Yara Sharif and Nasser Golzari used green stitching, greening rooftops and small street gardens to sew communities in Gaza together, proposed learning rooms where people could be taught how to salvage crushed concrete and rebar for building materials when blockades kept those materials out. There are also whimsical suggestions. A carrier pigeon network? The book is from Terraform, a nonprofit research group devoted to saving endangered spaces through design. It was edited by Michael Sorkin, the outspoken American urban critic who sadly died in 2021 from complications of COVID. And geographer Dean Sharif Sharp, co-founder of Terraform and a fellow at the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture at MIT. We start our conversation today with a basic premise. The Hamas attack was horrific. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's bombing campaign, disastrous. He has undermined a two-state solution. Hamas has rejected every peace plan. And the idea of a state of Israel, the leadership is not there now. But what if? What if? Dean Sharp is in Nairobi, Kenya, where he's focusing on the needs of Sudan, as he says, another place spiraling out of control. Dean, welcome. Thank
4: you so much for having
3: me. Well, and so sorry about your project partner, Michael Sorkin. What a a giant he was. Uh, But in the time we have now, we are hoping to hear what we never get to hear. This is architecture and design. It's not rebuilding, which billions has been poured into in the past.
4: Right. The book is organised around this concept of the right to the city by a French urbanist called Henri Lefebvre. Everyone's capacity in an urban context, their ability to shape their surroundings needs to be fulfilled. And that has always been a fundamental principle of Terraform, which was Michael Sorkin's NGO that he set up in 2005 to do these types of speculative projects that no one else would touch. No corporation, no government, often no grantees. These were often self-funded by Terraform itself. And Gaza was a brilliant illustration of this. This project was founded by Michael in response to Operation Protective Edge, which happened in 2014, in which there was a massive bombardment. Over 2,000 Palestinian civilians died, civilian infrastructure decimated.
3: This was Israel's response to Hamas rocket attacks. Uh, Then Operation Protective Edge led to the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism, or the GRM. This was Israel controlling materials going into Gaza they thought might be used militarily.
4: Right. And much like your own impetus of wanting to not just recount the endless destruction and the political calamity that is well known, but rather to say, okay, what would a Gaza look like that actually fulfilled the aspirations of its inhabitants, that allowed Gaza to look towards its hinterland and to design ring settlements that were surrounded by
3: green agricultural areas? There's a, a suggestion that there's a zone of special privilege for agriculture. Denise Hoffman Brandt talks about fishing boats uh, pulling flotillas of little desalination bubbles. They catch salt water, which evaporates under the plastic bubble domes. It leaves clean water. It is wild.
4: Exactly. To to do fanciful ideas, but they're also grounded in the reality that Gaza faces. So Helga Terwilsuri, for instance, talks about an internet pigeon network.
3: This is a suggestion that Gazans use homing pigeons to fly uh, uh, messages back and forth. Sure, maybe, but her greater point is... They have no agency in things like an internet
4: right and have shown enormous agency of circumventing blockades and being able to circulate information to live in neighbourhoods that are built through appropriate materials and so for instance there's a lot of documentation of alternative materials whether that be repurposed rubble uh, mud and other ways in which cement has got through despite restrictions for instance on cement was limited to 90 trucks a day which was nowhere near what was needed but What if, what if there was a context politically feasible to achieve in which Gazans were allowed to thrive, dream and achieve their goals like any other urban context?
3: Well, and part of the problem is the leadership in Gaza now, which is Hamas and Christine Boyer writes about the literal underground economy, tunnels which are privately owned but managed and taxed by Hamas. She writes, the usual story is about impoverishment, suffocation, Gaza under siege, all true. But if you want a Mercedes-Benz, guns, Belgian chocolates, Kentucky fried chicken delivered, make an international phone call, make a wire service payment, hire an Egyptian taxi, drive it up to the Sinai, transfer to couriers who go through a half-mile tunnel. She describes this tunnel benefiting an elite, But is there a real question about what if these tunnels could be something that all Palestinians could use, could be a driver in the economy for everyone?
4: Yes, tunnels would be, you know, to... uh link up urban neighborhoods in innovative ways to enhance connectivity between neighbors.
3: Well, also what we read in another fascinating and chilling essay, which is written by a woman um, under a pseudonym. If for some reason you can't get through the RAFA checkpoints, she says you'll be approached by kids on tuk-tuks who will whisper for a fee, you can take a tunnel, and then they literally meet someone at an opening and they go down this rabbit hole at one point, she's put in a bin on rails with her luggage and it becomes almost an amusement park ride. It, you know, it's almost like some of the fanciful ideas, they don't seem so fanciful when people are riding in bins down rails.
4: No, right. We actually see these types of merchandise tunnels becoming a reality. I've heard companies like uh, Amazon and so on trying to build tunnels for to deliver packages which is also another chapter in the book uh, which talks about smart city technologies that are being deployed in Gaza under the context of the blockade in which various materials were tracked uh, and movements and people. I mean, this was a very, and is a very heavily surveilled territory, that it allows a window in which we can see our future urban condition, mm. um, the way of goods and the vital infrastructures that keep urban life flowing are restricted, or what well, it looks like to have every moment uh, a possibility surveyed by an outside force.
3: Yes, what we see in Gaza is that a so-called smart city is actually a heavily surveilled and controlled city.
4: Exactly. I mean, and this is why we should also always take a big question to the uh, proposition of, of Smart city. Smart for who?
3: Uh, just if you could talk about housing and homes, which again, it's it's hard to even think of them now with the rubble that we see. But Salim Al-Kudwa, who was born to a Palestinian family in Libya and then studied architectural engineering at the Islamic University of Gaza, he wrote a beautiful section about the architecture of the everyday meeting the needs of people. He
4: was very frustrated in the way many international organizations came into Gaza. They were often more interested in experimental construction techniques or using innovative materials rather than really sitting and engaging with the Gazan population themselves. And the intergenerational aspect was absolutely crucial. Every building in Gaza is connected to a family. And so Salem and his project was very clear that, you know, you place the older generation at the bottom and younger couples with their children up above and to create communal spaces from the importance of the roof terrace.
3: And also building smaller housing that then families can build upon so, Dean Sharp, again, we're talking about the 2021 book, Open Gaza. It is a beautiful coffee table book. And Hadani Ditmars, writing in the Marquez Review of your book remembers her trip to Gaza in 1994. This was after the Oslo Accords. Gaza technically liberated. She said it was also before Israel encouraged Hamas uh, in order to increase tension with the PLO, before Israel's Itzhak Rabin was assassinated by settler extremists for his backing of a two-state solution. And she said, Gaza felt like a seaside town arrested in the mid-century. She picnicked with families in citrus groves. It was low-tech, naturally green, men on bikes. She said, Gaza felt like a newly reawakened sleeping beauty. And your book also has on its cover a beautiful photo of a young man. He's mid-backflip, and behind him is the, the stretch of beach in Gaza, just glorious. But as you write, that's some, you know, young man who participated in parkour in Gaza. Those people have left. We see what Gaza looks like now. Do you think it can go back? Again, there are so many questions. Who pays for it? Who are the leaders on each side of the border? But do you think it's possible?
4: In terms of the urban design, there is the capacity, Palestinians are some of the best architects and engineers on this planet. And we need to correct the very obvious injustices with a concerted political effort. This is a political crisis. We can't go back, but we can go forward.
3: Well, and there are, as you said, certainly uh, Palestinian architects, designers, environmentalists uh, standing by waiting to implement their ideas. Uh, Dean Sharp, who's co-editor of the beautiful 2021 book, Open Gaza, Architectures of Hope. He curated it with the late Michael Sorkin. Dean, thank you so much.
4: Robin, thank you so much for your interest in this book.
1: Coming up, are we going to fly now? The economy has a Rocky metaphor. Do you feel beat up or... Victorious? Scott Tong talks with economist Diane Swank next.
5: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Your employees are more than your coworkers. They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealthcom slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why.
6: Some people have dubbed it the Goldilocks economy, managing to lower inflation a little bit at a time without crashing into a recession, doing that soft landing, as a lot of economists talk about. Well, how's that going, and where are we going as far as next year? Joining us for a look ahead is Diane Swank, Chief Economist at KPMG, the global accounting firm. Diane, good to have you. It's great to be here. So in your year-end note, you go big on the rocky boxing metaphor for the U.S. economy, (laughs) which, as a child of the 70s, I'm so with you.
2: (laughs) The rocky metaphor is so important because... Winning for Rocky wasn't always necessarily knocking out his opponent and actually winning the final fight. He won by being standing. The franchise was about endurance. We want to have as many people standing when the Fed's done with its final round.
6: How did the U.S. economy get pounded and pounded and yet avoid recession? We even saw an acceleration
2: in spending over the summer, everything from vehicles to big-ticket items to services. Inflation cooled more rapidly than wages, so we actually got some purchasing power back that sort of gave oh, us a tailwind mm. going into the summer. The Fed, yeah. although it's pleased with where we've gotten without you know being knocked into a recession, which is wonderful, it's still been somewhat more dissonance in consumers' attitudes about the economy. And there is a dissonance there, and there is a gap, and we're only just beginning to really finally heal. And the question is, how will we get through this last round before the Fed cuts rates? And what will the economy look like on the other side of
6: that? -hmm. You're right, Diane, that the last time our economy really had to beat back big-time inflation, it was so painful. What might this softer landing look like?
2: You know, we're expecting growth to slow pretty abruptly in the current quarter already. Moving into what we hope to be a soft landing is a gradual slowdown in the economy. And I think, you know, what many people keep discounting is, why, even as consumer attitudes rebound from the low levels we saw, they're still not anywhere near what the economy looks like on paper. Even though the economy has done remarkably well in the wake of the mm. pandemic, the last couple of years have not been very pleasant, even though it's done well and we are seeing inflation cool.
6: Yeah. And as far as the housing market for, say, first-time home buyers, are we likely to see interest rates stay really high and therefore keep a lot of people on the sidelines?
2: There's so much pent-up demand of first-time buyers in the millennials. The problem is that means bidding wars on any property that comes on the market because, in fact, we've got Mm. acute shortages of homes for sale. We're in this weird mortgage winter where many first-time buyers are locked out unless they have the help of their baby boomer parents who've already paid off Mm. their mortgages. Over 42% of all existing homes are paid off in full. And then oh, you've got wow. over 80% locked in below 5% on their mortgage rate. Mm. They don't want to give up. But that is really freezing up the entire market in terms of freezing people out and freezing people mm. in place.
6: What do you think the rent situation is going to be?
2: Oh, that's a good question. You know, we know that rents in general have started to come down quite dramatically But also it's very uneven, I mean the places where it's fallen the most is also the places that saw the largest rent appreciation. And so the question is are they still yet affordable? And we have to remember we also increased the ranks of poverty even as wealth increased. We also increased the ranks of the working homeless even as employment increased. That says something about where we're at, the Mm -hmm. devil is in the details and I think that's important to remember.
6: How about the job market? You know, since the pandemic began, we've been talking about, oh, in many industries, we have too many openings, not enough workers. Should we presume that's going to get harder? Paychecks and wages are going to slow down?
2: Well, actually, I think um, wages might pick up a little bit as we get beyond the strikes. But one of the things we saw was those sectors Hmm. that drove the hiring frenzy early on in the pandemic all of a sudden started to slow and some even lost jobs. While sectors that lagged and were less interest rate sensitive, three sectors in particular, leisure and hospitality, healthcare, and government driven by public education, many of those are positions that have been listed as job openings since reopening began. And those picked up the slack, but that narrowing of job gains concentrated in just three sectors, did make the U.S. economy much more fragile to external shocks, which we saw in October when we had multiple strikes, the actor strike and the UAW strike at the same time, you know, shifts and shocks have become the norm and uncertainty has become the norm. And that in and of itself is a bit of a tax on the economy. And you could get a recoil where it wouldn't be hard to, you know, have some kind of shock that pushed employment negative. We hope that isn't going to happen and that's not in our mm. forecast, But Mm -hmm. it's possible, on the other side of it, the good news is how rapidly inflation has decelerated.
6: Uh, Diane, stepping back, how do you see where we go with this defining feature, it seems, of our modern economy, this big income and wealth gap?
2: You know, it's one of the hardest things even though we had a major move up in wealth from 2019 to 2022, the largest by twofold adjusted for inflation that we've ever seen in any three-year period, according to the Federal Reserve. Mm. And it was across income strata, educational attainment, and age groups. So that was great. Even though that happened, inequality still worsened. The idea that you can't buy a house unless you have the help of your parents the inability to buy a home, which is the epitome of the American dream for millennials, Mm. which now dominate the labor market. The fact that for a moment in time, workers that were considered disposable for several decades became essential. Their wages were leveled up only to be burned by inflation. And these Mm. are the things, and it's why it's so important that we eradicate inflation and we get down to wages outpacing inflation again for a sustained period of time to heal and to deal with some of this inequality more fundamentally because it is part of what divides us and it's part of the reason why you know you can't really get the sense of fully healing after mm. the blow that we've had.
6: You have an interesting set of observations in your year-end note about AI, artificial intelligence. You know, in the past labor economists told us that new technologies often replace the lower skilled workers mm-hmm. and those with more skills in general thrive. That was the story. New technologies actually made more jobs for them. But now AI, chat GPT might be different.
2: It is. You know, it lifts both the productivity of the lowest skilled call center worker dramatically. That's what the mm. test showed. The highest skilled call center worker doesn't do much for them. But for that lowest skilled one, it increases there ability to do that quite well. It also requires a seasoned programmer to overlook the programming that it can do to make sure it's right, but then you got to make sure you're bringing up a pipeline of seasoned programmers to watch it so you don't want to necessarily lose all the programmers either. It's a unique kind of technology in that one, it does have a reasoning ability and so that makes people really scared that it will replace humans entirely. Well, if you start Mm. to really go down that path, Guess what humans will will not let it be adopted. I mean that's a big hurdle to adoption and there are a lot of hurdles to adopting this technology more broadly as well. But I think we mm. need to really think more holistically. We know over time historically one the gap between innovation and you know sort of commercialization of a new technology can be long. Even if it's compressed mm. it's still not tomorrow. And two we need computing power, we need energy. And we also need to understand that in order to get a technology to be adopted, you have to make sure workers don't feel threatened, that their jobs are going to become eliminated mm. entirely.
6: This issue of you know, potential fragility in the economy that, that you mentioned, when you think of surprises that could come, external shocks, as economists like to, to put it, in 2024, what do you think about?
2: First of all, we've got wars on several fronts. Right now, oil prices are pretty low, but we're already getting attacks that are forcing you know, oil tankers to go a longer route that could disrupt yeah. oil supplies. We need to go into renewables more aggressively. That's costly. There's a lot of you know, geopolitical tectonic plates that are shifting now as well, not just climate change. And you add it all together and you just realize you're sort of the metaphorical Alice in Through the Looking Glass. She had to run to stay in place. It was yeah, a I mirror have. image of, reality, she got to wake up on the other side of that mirror with her cats in her lap in her uncle's study with the world restored to normal. We don't get to go back. We went through the looking glass and we're stuck in this world with many more external shocks that make us more susceptible to bouts of inflation and supply shocks and that is important when you're talking about an economy that's slowing where it's only dependent on a few sectors that you could easily knock it off its course and get a contraction in employment, and that's not what we want.
6: Diane Swank, friend of here and now, chief economist at KPMG. Diane, always good to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you.
1: Coming up... The new year means a treasure trove of sound and cinema entering the public domain, from Disney's earliest animation to Bessie Smith's blues.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission.
1: The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And
0: that includes tax strategies. That includes dollar cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com.
3: And it's January 1st, always a big day. It's a new year, a new start. But January 1st is also Public Domain Day. Woohoo! Copyrights are lifted on this day, and this year, thousands of copyrighted works from 1928 will enter the U.S. public domain. For instance, these lyrics from Cole Porter's Let's Do It. Let's do it. Let's, do it.
2: let's fall in love.
3: And in addition to lyrics today's sound recordings from 1923 will also be free for all to copy, share, use creatively. Anyone want to use this classic earworm?
0: Yes, of course, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today.
3: And of course, the big one. Our next guest says the most anticipated arrival in the public domain. I give you Mickey Mouse, or at least his image from his debut in the 1928 cartoon Steamboat Willie. So after nearly a century of copyright protection, what does this mean for Disney, for all of us? Jennifer Jenkins is director of the Center for Study of the Public Domain at Duke University School of Law. Jennifer, welcome. Happy New Year. Thanks so much, Robin. Happy New Year to you, too. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm thinking for you, someone who studies the public domain, you must have like a party hat on. Like, this is a big deal day.
7: Um, I have my pajamas on. Thank you oh, very much. okay. And thank you for playing my favorite song about produce. I absolutely love that song, and I'm so <laughs> glad we get to talk about it again. It's so fascinating.
3: Uh, stay with Mickey Mouse, because he's central to the Disney identity, along with Minnie, who's also available today. And you remind us it was because of Mickey that Disney pushed for the law that extended copyright to 95 years. It was, you know, 50-odd years, four years. And and this was Disney's doing. Yes,
7: let's talk about the 800-pound mouse in the Mm -hmm. room. Many refer to the copyright term extension law as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act derisively, even Mm -hmm. though that may be oversimplified. So yes, this is a symbolic moment for that reason, but also for the reason, the ironic reason at the same time that it, Robin, if you were to ask me for the best use case of the public domain, who makes the most brilliant public domain remakes, I would point to Disney. Yes, you do. I would point to The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Pinocchio and Sleeping Beauty and Frozen and The Lion King and The Little Mermaid. And, you know, the list goes on and on of all of their beloved reuses of public domain works. And so that's what makes the, this this moment such a beautiful, symbolic, emblematic And ironic moment.
3: You know, people might be thinking, well, what the heck do we need these things to come out of copyright for? Well, it's so that a place like Disney can openly do Frozen knowing that it's based on something else.
7: Yes, we draw from the past. Everyone draws from the past, and you cannot create in a vacuum. So you need pre-existing creativity in order to make new creative works. And so the copyright system, by design, has the rights expire so that creators have valuable rights, in this case for 95 years, so almost a century. That's a great thing for many creators. But then after the copyrights expire, it's what the head of the copyright office called the next step in the life cycle of their creative work when it enters the public domain and can feed, nurture, inspire future creativity. And that's exciting too. Uh, And
3: by the way, we should say it's just the Steamboat Mickey. It's like an old Mickey that's available today. It's not the Fantasia Mickey or the Mickey Mouse Club Mickey.
7: Absolutely. Later copyrighted versions of Mickey and Minnie Mouse the copyrightable features of those later versions of the mice; those are not yet in the public yeah. domain.
3: We'll talk about the rules with music uh, becoming available today. Some compositions are now available. We heard a little of Cole Porter's "Let's Do It." You can use the lyrics, you know, put them on a T-shirt or, or a mug or something. But the recordings are under another copyright. But some sound recordings are available and you can remix them to your heart's content, you tell us. Here's one entering the public domain today, uh, written by Herbert Stothart, Harry Ruby, and lyrics by Burt Kalmar for the 1928 musical Good Boy, sung here by Helen Kane.
7: I want to be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. I want to be loved by you, love. (laughs) <laughs> well, so
3: explain wow. Jennifer. I love that, but explain because we were thinking. You heard Marilyn Monroe sing that in some like a yes, hot. Yes, famously. Did so? Did yep. they have to pay? Is that the difference? Yes. So, so staying though with the copyrights, does this mean mm-hmm. if if these are lifted and everything's in the public domain, that the original creators uh, or more likely their heirs no lo- longer earn any money if you are using it?
7: Um, they're no longer entitled to royalties by virtue of persisting copyright protection. But here's the key thing about that. We're talking about almost a century. By this time, with the vast majority, over 99% of works from 1928, no one's owning any royalties Anyway, Hmm. but guess what the good news is? It's like Christmas all over again. We all get to open those thousands and thousands of cultural gifts, and the public is now free to post these works online, share them, copy them, build upon them, and that's kind of exciting.
3: I love the idea of somebody taking an a 100-year-old song and mixing it into a a new one. But what about African-American artists like Bessie Smith, who's recording Downhearted Blues, enters the public domain today? Let's listen. there's the Stride Piano Master James P. Johnson's recording of the Charleston. (laughs) So, Jennifer, did black artists copyright their work as much as they should or could have? And, you know, how did copyrights impact them?
7: So, that's a great question, Rob. And one thing to keep in mind about copyright protection, particularly in that era, is that copyright did not benefit all of the creators and artists. Uh, who were creating some of these wonderful enduring works that we're talking about? So you mentioned Bessie Smith. Uh, Bessie Smith was brilliant. She's been called the Empress of the Blues. She influenced everybody for everyone from Billie Holiday to Aretha Franklin to to the great Beyonce. But she did make money from her performances. But she signed these recording contracts that deprived her of any royalties for her compositions or recordings, and just paid her a paltry sum. Sometimes one hundred and twenty five dollars. I think they topped out at two hundred. Dollars for her work. And so there were a number of reasons that many great black artists from the era did not benefit from copyright at all. So with music, for example, until 1978, music was considered to be something that you wrote down on paper. So all of these artists who did not create music in written form didn't get copyrights over their compositions. By the time we're looking back into this time capsule to 1928, a lot of this culture has been forgotten. And, you know, I've had a ball just opening the lid every year I get to do this. So this year is 1928. Um, And, you know, looking at the cross-section of all of the cultural works from that period, both the famous ones and the ones that are waiting to be rediscovered. Is there something that just jumped out at you? The unexpurgated version, the original of Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. Mm -hmm. You've got Virginia Woolf's masterpiece, Orlando. And then you have you know, some happier, sillier things like The House up in the Corner, which was Tigger's introduction into the Hundred Acre Wood. And for, for cat lovers out there, I have another one. Millions of Cats, the longest running picture book in American history, which features, as the name suggests, a whole lot of cats. And so a lot of these books jump out at me for many reasons, both ones that sort of stop and make you think and ones that just bring a smile to your face.
3: Yeah. Well, people can listen to the recordings at the Library of Congress National Jukebox, and they can also read your article detailing just everything that's come out. We'll link everyone at hereandnow.org. Shall we go out with, let's see, uh, a song that's been recorded by more than 25 famous artists over the years, from Fats Domino to Judy Garland to Michael Bublé? and starting today, You at Home, we're going to listen to When You're Smiling as we thank Jennifer Jenkins, Director of the Center for the Study of the Public Domain at Duke University School of Law, on this Public Domain Day. Thank you, Jennifer.
7: Thank you, Robin, and Happy New Year to everybody.
0: When you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. When you're laughing, when you're
7: laughing,
1: Hope your new year is off to a rousing start. We wish you the best and more in 2024. Our show comes to you thanks to the team behind here and now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Our stories today are produced by Lynn Menigan, Karen miller medson and me, Shirley Jihad. Our editors are Todd Munt, Julia Corcoran, and Kat Welsh. Technical directors are Caleb Green and Patrick O'Connor. Mike Moschetto, Max Liebman, and Chris Bentley created our theme music. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. I'm Shirley Jihad. Thank you for being with us. Subscribe, and we'll see you tomorrow.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer?